bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Thank you for uh, joining us today for the seventh installment of RBC's Navigating the Energy Transition series. I am TJ Schultz in equity research at RBC, and we'll be joined by my colleague, Chris Looney, who covers natural gas for our commodity team at RBC. Uh, Today's call will focus on opportunities and challenges for renewable natural gas, or RNG. Uh, Chris and I published a deep dive on RNG in the fall, and the topic has continued to capture interest across private and public markets and throughout the value chain. To that end, we are joined today by three individuals that I think should each bring uh, a different perspective to the RNG story. Uh, Each of their bios was included with the invite. So just briefly, uh, Mark Nelson joins us from Chevron. Uh, Mark is EVP downstream and chemicals at Chevron. uh, And we will certainly touch on Chevron's commitment to supplying reliable and ever cleaner energy. Brian Levinka uh, joins us from Williams. Uh, Brian is Director of Emerging Opportunities at Williams, and we'll have a great perspective on Midstream's role in RNG uh, and ability to move upstream. Uh, And last, but certainly not least, John Dannon is a principal with Generate Capital. Uh, Generate is one of the largest owners of anaerobic digesters in the U.S., Uh, and John will have a lot to add on private capital's role uh, in the RNG growth story. Thanks, TJ. And again, thank you all for joining us. But uh, regarding logistics today, TJ and I will conduct a Q&A with our panelists. But if you have a question, uh, please feel free to address that through the chat function here at any point. Um, and we'll do our best to get to it uh, within the time we have today. And so with that, uh, thanks again to all of our panelists. But let's kick it off. And I'm going to start with, uh, with you, Mark. Uh, Chevron held its investor day earlier this week. Um, and renewable natural gas was highlighted as an action area for you to lower carbon. Coming out of that event, can you discuss a bit about Chevron's approach to RNG and its partnerships, such as the Brightmark joint venture? Thank you, Chris. And let me start by saying I thought your your deep dive uh, earlier this year was very well done. By the way, so let me let me start there. But you're, you're right. We did we did speak with our investors earlier this week, our traditional uh, annual investor day, and, and RNG did come up, and we talked about how RNG aligned with our strategy for higher returns and lower carbon, um, and, and we even suggested that we expected to be a strong player in the RNG CNG space in policy enabled markets, especially a market like the U.S. West Coast where we're so strong. Um, in fact, we shared that we were going to increase our RNG production tenfold by 2025, and, and, and the reason for that really is because it leverages Chevron's strengths. Um, we're, we're very good at partnering, and you've mentioned some of the people that we've begun to partner with. We'll talk about that. Um, we're, we're big into value chains. That means feedstock all the way to retail or commercial sales. So we, we know that space very well. And finally, we know the policies, um, especially here in California, where um, low-carbon fuel standards and the renewable fuel standards for the United States kind of come together. So we know how to make that all, all work. Um, it's also an area where, at least relative to the other things that we do, it's um, lower capital intensity and perhaps even even less risk. And since we focused on our feedstock side of this equation, mostly towards dairy farm, maybe a little bit of pig farms, we're also generating what's the lowest um, CI carbon intensity fuel, in fact, a negative carbon intensity fuel in in California. So the system really, really supports that. And we've done that through partnerships. Um, I can't talk about the deals that are coming, but of course, we have announced our original deal with Brightmark, who you uh, who you hinted about. Um, that was uh, earlier, so August, uh, see, September, October of last year, we did our first deal with Brightmark. We've recently announced an extension of that. Prior to that in uh, the third quarter of last year, we also uh, initiated a deal with CalBio Energy, another group of farmers where we could work a feedstock transaction. And we've also kicked off an adopt-a-port program with Clean Energy, where we're helping truck drivers in the ports of Southern California transition their trucks. So it's a very disciplined growth plan for us and one that we think we can do well and, and do it with appropriate returns. Great, Mark. I appreciate that. Um, John, why don't we... Uh, over to you next. I, I think two things to start off uh, here. Uh, first, maybe we can just touch on this right out of the right out of the gate. Uh, Generate's co-founder was uh, recently announced to be joining 
the Biden administration heading up uh, the DOE's $40 billion loans program office. So just anything that you could touch on there with the opportunity for that program to be supportive of things like RNG. Uh, and then really for you more broadly uh, related to Generate and, and RNG, if you could just discuss how uh, Generate is investing in RNG and, and how that has evolved over the past few years. Thanks. Sure, no, I'd be happy to. Thanks. And, and thanks um, to the RBC Capital Markets team for, for hosting this and, and the probably the best titled research piece of, of recent history. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's, unfortunately, there's not so much uh, I, I can say about the DOE loan program. I've, I've not actually used it before within the RNG world, and I, I don't have insight into Jigger's plans. But the, the one thing I can say is, um, you know, very knowing Jigger and, and for anyone who's listened, listened to the Energy Gang and whatnot, I'm, I'm sure anyone that knows him is very excited to see what he's going to do at, at, at the loan program. And I'm sure there's going to be some innovation and business models and, and great stuff that he's, you know, is, is his trademark. So um, excited to see that, but unfortunately not, not much insight um, to, to share. But to, to the other part of the question, um, happy to provide a bit more, more background on what Generate has been doing and how we look at investing in RNG. Um, as background, I, I lead the organic waste team at Generate, and that is the the lens with which we've come into to what, what folks call the RNG industry. Um, we really view it from the waste side and the feedstock side, and so we, um, we break up the organic waste industry into animal waste, food waste, biosolids treatment, diff different types of waste stream, and they broadly um, align with uh, different CI profiles and different business models. And so we're invested across um, food waste and animal waste. Uh, we have a couple of large uh, dairy to RNG projects that, that feed into the LCFS program. Um, so similar to, to the ones Mark, Mark and team are building with, with Brightmark and others. Um, but we actually started investing um, in food waste uh, several years ago in, in the mid-20 the mid teens. Um, but really it was the the big amendment to LCFS in 2018 that pivoted us more to focus on animal waste in, in the near term. Um, we produce RNG from both, though, from dairy sites and from food waste sites. Um, we're in Canada and uh, the US, so we have some Canadian food waste RNG. Um, and so we have sort of a broad perspective, and, and you know, I think we'll talk about it later, but really there's sort of two markets um, forming Within, within the broad RNG market, being the, the ultra-low animal waste CI projects, um, which you know, feed into the LCFS, and then the more long-term contracted utility or voluntary market contracts, uh, you know, lower price but contracted and more stable for landfill gas and food waste and other, other forms of RNG production. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a history of what we've been doing and, and where we think the market's going. Um, Mark, with goals generally framed um, at Chevron is higher returns, lower carbon in mind. At a high level, how does renewable natural gas compete within your list of projects at Chevron? And how do you sort of assess for RNG, um, returns for RNG versus other options on the table, such as biofuels or, or carbon capture and storage and things like that? Okay, thanks, thanks, Chris. You know, first off, thanks for recognizing our pursuit of of higher carbon or uh, lower carbon and higher returns, the, the we believe we must do both. We have to improve returns and and lower carbon, and we believe that our approach to uh, to RNG can help us there. We've we've been you know as I mentioned earlier, the the capital intensity of RNG investments are is, is much lower than some of the other things that we consider, especially renewable diesel or carbon capture utilization and storage, things, other things that we invest in. And so it's more of a portfolio mix for us. And so when we step back and look at RNG and CNG, um, I would say given how we focused on the lower CI feedstock and our intent not to put it into kind of utility use, but all the way to CNG, you know, transportation fuel use, you get the most policy supports in the areas that we're focused on today, the U.S. West Coast and California in particular. And I would say that does generate um, appropriate returns for us, very, very competitive double-digit returns. The thing that we are considering, though, is making sure that we stay balanced in that in regard to the RNG production and the CNG placement, because our consequence history over time is that policy can change and that margin can move between different from feedstock to, to the, the retail side and then back and forth over time. And so we're taking a balanced approach to that. And we think that keeps our, our returns pretty steady over the different scenarios we can see in the future. Great, thanks. 
Yeah, Brian, if you can just touch on Williams and RNG, how um, how RNG fits into your system and, and kind of Williams' role at this point. Thanks. RNG for us isn't something that's necessarily new. It's a, a product that we've been moving in our system for quite a while now. Uh, but it is one that has gotten much more attention here uh, recently, especially as we think about what we're trying to achieve from a, a climate standpoint. You know, William set a 2050 net zero goal uh, and then also a 2030 interim 56% uh, reduction goal. Um, and so that's really what our group is focusing on within emerging opportunities is how do we achieve that but how do we do it in a way that, that builds a business and not necessarily just burdens a business? And so um, RNG is definitely one of those, you know, right here, right now type of opportunities. It's a, it's a relatively proven commodity. And, and for Williams, it, it's a very natural fit into our core business. You know, when you look at where our infrastructure is around the, the lower 48, you know, we touch the Pacific Northwest. We're obviously you know, with Transco all along the, the East Coast and the Gulf Coast all the way up into New York. But then you also throw in our GMP footprint. There's a, there's a ton of overlap there. And so our approach to RNG has been, you know, how can we best utilize our assets, our expertise, our core business, and find ways to leverage that into new investment opportunities. And so, um, you know, when you do the question around how, how far upstream do you go, how, how well does this fit, what's your strategy, you know, to be determined, I, I think for us, are we going to be a dairy farmer? No, uh, it's definitely not in our, our wheelhouse, but I think, um, finding partnership opportunities and going after the, the the projects that are in close proximity to our asset base is definitely a part of our strategy. Um, as we started to engage with with RNG developers, one of the things that we we heard uh, consistently was that they typically don't want to own or construct infrastructure. There's a great void there that we can fill uh, and bring some value to those those investments. And so. Um, that's definitely step one for us is, is to identify where we can add value to that value chain, but then also where can we put some capital to work? As, as Mark said, these are, you know, good return opportunities. Um, and so we're, we're evaluating what's the right source, where are the right locations, what's the right volume to make these things meaningful, and then how can we use it as our own decarbonization tool moving forward? John, maybe let's jump over to you. I, I think you, you hinted at it earlier, and, and um, you and I have discussed kind of two um, markets or two RNG markets from an investment perspective. Um, if you could just talk a little bit to the incentives in place for RNG and, and how investing into those incentives compares to uh, investing into RNG projects that are supported uh, through voluntary offtake uh, agreements. Uh, and, and then I think uh, some Canadian RNG projects may be a bit further along uh, with some of the voluntary offtake by utilities. So do you yeah. see more of that migrating into the U.S. And, and how much more work from a regulatory standpoint is required uh, to grow that voluntary market? Got it. I'll, I'll try and take take it in order. Um, you know, in, in terms of the incentives, I think everyone who's, who's, who's read your piece or who's listening is probably aware of them. Um, you know, the main main ones are obviously, you know, RINs under the RFS, and, and depending on your feedstock, it's going to be D3s or, or D5s. Um, you know, to characterize that as, hard to underwrite on a merchant basis because there's um, annual renewable volume obli obligations. So you basically have annual um, appropriations risk on, on things, um, on volume setting, which in turn affects prices and, and ability to sell. It's not been an issue in the past, but it's always out there. It's hard, hard to underwrite. You have LCFS, um, which as a program has been out there a lot longer, I think, than folks recognize since the, the early mid uh, 20 teens, um, but really became relevant again with that amendment in 2018 that set the bar of ratcheting down ever decreasing um, targets uh, for transport um, carbon emissions in California. Um, and what that did was set a a very clear supply demand imbalance for the supply of credits, which um, allows folks like myself, private capital investors, um, owners of these projects to take a, a much longer term view. There's none of that sort of appropriations risk annually. You can run a model and look at supply and demand and tweak how much renewable diesel is going to come on, how much RNG is going to come on, how much carbon capture is going to come on, how many EVs are going to get built. And you can get comfortable with a supply demand model and credit pricing. Um, and, and so that's just a high level of the two different incentives that are out there. Um, and now that that has led to a couple of different types of markets. Um, as, as Mark has been saying, there's sort of the the ultra low CI market, which is the animal waste or the you know, dairies and, and hogs. Um, 
uh, primarily it's harder to digest poultry waste, different conversation. Um, so dairy and hog waste. Um, and the the value that you derive from those from the LCFS is is very high dollars per MMBTU equivalent. Um, you know the the value same uh, you know projects that landfill gas or food waste you'll you'll get a regular way CI score. So an average dairy may get a minus three hundred for a dairy to RNG. Um, a food waste or landfill will be in the twenty to forties. And what that means for for folks not familiar with how it works is it's approximately 25%, um, I'm just swagging at the numbers, 20 to 30% of credits for the same amount of MNBTU's production, i.e. of LCFS credits, i.e. a lot less revenue per MNBTU. Um, so just as a, as a quick quick study there. Um, and so what that means is you have sort of a, uh, a market in the LCFS where you can get very quick paybacks or, or very attractive returns as, as, as both um, Brian and Mark have stated, uh, and I absolutely agree with that. Um, there's not a great long-term contracting uh, world yet, but it is definitely improving. And as more LCFS and like programs come on, it definitely improves. Um, but the point is high return merchant risk off offtake generally, right? Um, and, and I think we'll talk about vehicles and placing the gas into vehicles later as part of the value creation chain. Uh, when I say offtake, I mean selling the credits um, in, in this particular piece. Um, so LCFS really favors the animal waste market for that reason. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about that, that later from a re revenue and cost perspective. Um, food waste and landfill gas have much more volume that can produce more volumes generally, especially landfill gas and, and wastewater treatment as another type of, of RNG production site. Um, and what, what we're seeing there is it's, it's great if they can get into LCFS, they just have to pay a lot more in the vehicle commissions to, to get there. Um, but it's equally great if they can get a utility contract or a voluntary market contract. So just, just to explain that, that side, and this is the second market. So first market is high risk. Um, but high return. Um, this is potentially lower risk, but lower return. In, in British Columbia, there's a um, minimum RNG mandate for the utilities. So Fortis BC has been putting out long dated 20 year contracts to buy RNG. We, we have one at our London, Ontario food waste digester. Um, so we have a uh, 20 year um, contract for a, a high you know, not as high as LCFS, but, but high dollar by MMBTU price, which is great. Um, we're seeing that migrate into the US. Uh, to, to, so this is the second model, uh, lower return, but much more stable, much more leverable, much more long-term infrastructure-like properties. Um, we're seeing that migrate into the US. There's a lot of conversations around potentially similar mandates um, in, in US states being, being driven by various you know, parties. Um, but there's also the voluntary market, which is corporate ESG uh, market um, evolving, providing you know, similar type contracts, 10, 10 to 15 years, um, call it 15 to $20 per MMBTU type range. So um, that's the evolution of the other market, lower risk, steadier returns, but more infrastructure-like. No, that's, that's helpful. Uh, we've had a couple of questions come in, and I think I want to touch on one of them here. And, and uh, John, you and Mark both have kind of touched on uh, some of the very low CI uh, having to do with dairy. I, I, the question's really, so landfill gas has a higher or a positive CI because of um, some of the federal regulation um, that requires landfills to have methane collection sy um, systems. Uh, I, I think the question is the risk to those low CIs uh, on some of the farms. Is, is there, uh, to the extent that there's um, regulatory requirements that there is methane collection on farms, is there a risk that future projects don't generate that huge negative CI score uh, in the future? And I'll kind of leave that for, for any of you that would be able to answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take it. Um, we'll take the first stab at it. Um, so, no, it's a great question. I think it was uh, Greg who had that question. So, thank you, Greg. Um, yeah, no, uh, a couple of, I'll take a step back. When, when you get a CI score, you get a 10 year crediting period um, uh, un under which kind of changes in rules don't affect projects. Um, but uh, what, what Greg is maybe alluding to, but not aware of the specific details, CARB has. You know, rulemaking sessions every every couple of years. They're going through one now, and it's you know, 
within California, dairies um, are not mandated to have caps on their lagoons, which means um, they have a high emissions profile. That is the baseline for the high sea ice scores for dairies. Uh, landfill gas um, projects in California and, and nationwide do have to have um, caps, uh, and therefore they have low emissions profile compared to a methane generating site that doesn't have a, a cap, um, a, a cover, sorry, a, you know, a landfill cover or a lagoon cover. So that's that's the genesis of this. Um, so the question is whether CARB or CDFA um, or California in general says in the future, and the time frame for this is the mid-2020s, this is generally what folks think, um, should California dairies being mandated to cap their lagoons, at which point the baseline for dairy projects nationwide under the California LCFS um, will be a lot less methane and therefore a lot less methane abatement and therefore a much less negative score, maybe a positive score. Um, but that won't affect existing projects until their 10-year crediting period is through. Um, so uh, it's, it's not generally considered an issue for the slate of projects being built now, um, but it's something to be aware of for investors that there's a 10-year time horizon and then your CI score may be radically different thereafter. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of, uh, it's it's a few years away and there's a lot of political movement on both sides, pro, pro and uh, counter to, to that happening. Um, but that's, I think, a decent synopsis of the background and how it affects the, the model. But Mark O'Brien, any um, thoughts on that? Well, it's hard to be, well well said. Would be my first my first comment. Um, I, I, the only thing I would add is you know in a policy enabled space like this, watching this, the the political signposts is pretty important. The ten year lock in period obviously allows you to make your your judgment of investments. And as I mentioned earlier, our desire to be on both parts of the supply chain, the, the production side, as well as the, the, the retail side on, on the transportation piece, mitigates risk as policies change margin moves in the, in the value chain, and that allows us to kind of protect our returns over time. So that's the philosophy that we take to, to deal with what you described. That's great. Um, Chris, you want to maybe move on and, and uh, yeah. we can uh, touch on with Brian? Sure. Uh, yeah. So back to you, Brian. Um, you know, as we think about the development of the RNG space, it would be helpful for us to understand, and I think we've discussed some of this already, what sort of factors Williams, for example, evaluates when investing in an RNG project? Like how important is proximity to your current infrastructure versus maybe the size of the project? And what are the other considerations we should keep in mind as we think about the development of the space? Yeah. Good, good question, Chris. Thanks. Um, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the strategy around proximity to, to assets. That's definitely part of it. it there seems to be, uh, you know, a, a breakover point once you get a certain distance away from your infrastructure. That if you don't have enough volume or critical mass, that the project economics get pretty challenging, and then you have to start thinking about trucking. Um, so our initial approach has definitely been looking around our assets. Um, luckily for us, we've, we're all over the place. We're, we're pretty spread out and have a lot of opportunities that are in close proximity. So that, that's kept us plenty busy. Uh, but we do know that that will, that will run out at some point and we'll have to, to reevaluate how do we go to the market. And so I think, you know, step two there would be volume for us. I, I think um, that the larger projects are definitely getting um, scooped up and there's developers out there that are looking to, to aggregate as much volume as possible. So uh, that market is definitely getting tough. I think the other consideration for us is, is source, ultimately, right? Um, I, I think there's definitely pros and cons to each of them. Um, and they both, you know, all different sources have their, um, their value to Williams. But, but also, I think, you know, what are our customers looking for? That, that's a big, a big goal for us is to identify, you know, the, the people we're already connected with are also looking to utilize RNG, whether that's power generation, LDCs, potentially LNG. Um, and so how, how are they looking to participate in that market and, and what are, what types of sources are they looking for? Um, the other part of it for me, it, it comes down to kind of, you know, carbon abatement and, and ultimately carbon efficiency, you know, how cost effective are any of these solutions? Um, and everybody has, you know, from a customer standpoint, they each have their own budget, their own strategy of how do they want to achieve their own goals. And so that pushes us in different directions based on what they're looking for. Um, 
from an investment standpoint, I would say, you know, Williams, you know, if you look at our core business and how we operate, we're, we're a four fee business, basically. We don't take a ton of commodity exposure and commodity risk. And so, you know, finding ways to uh, work in the voluntary market, you know, John did a great job explaining kind of how that's evolving around us and some of the other um, neighboring countries and, and how they've put policies in place to enable um, people to monetize RNG outside of just RFS and LCFS. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we're going to be jumping into, you know, taking spec risk on, on those types of uh, markets. We want to find ways to, to either hedge away that, that risk or potentially find voluntary off-takers. So, um, within the voluntary market, there's definitely a push towards um, some of the maybe higher CI gas that's not as expensive, and so I think that will push us that direction as well. Great, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, I, I, I think a question for um, maybe Mark and John both, you, you've kind of both touched on, on CNG a bit. And, and Mark, I, I want to ask about CNG and your investor presentation. You highlighted more than 30 uh, CNG stations in California by 2025. If you could just talk about the importance of, of that outlet when you think about needing access to, to fleets to accept the RNG. And, and then John, probably a, a similar question as a private investor. Um, if you could just talk about some of the cost and hurdles related to to gaining access to to CNG. Yeah, thanks, TJ. Uh, you know, I, I, we we've uh, touched on this, but because we have a value chain mentality, meaning we do want to be involved in the production and the sale, where we can get the highest uh, policy support, it takes us to the CNG space. And given our branded, you know, our transportation fuel business and the strong presence we have in the policy enabled market of the U.S. West Coast, it allows us to leverage our, our strengths. And, and the interesting part of this is that today, you know, the California Class 8 vehicle, it's a, it's a very, it's a pretty small portion is CNG related today. And so we have to participate in stimulating that demand. And that's why we have this Adopt-a-Port program where we're helping, you know, truck owners transition to CNG trucks over time, so it's that balance of making sure we have the demand while we're creating the production at the same time. It not only does that reduce risk, but it allows us to take largest advantage of the policy support during that 10, 10 year lock-in period. And so far, that's going going very well. And of course, our brand you know allows us to without very much capital, it allows us to add CNG um, capabilities on either existing sites or with existing partners. So uh, more of that to come over time. And we did reference that in our uh, in our investor day discussions. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's great. And um, the, the only thing I'd add there is, hey, save some capacity for us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think to, um, to to highlight this for folks on on the call, um, just in terms of how, how do you make a credit, uh, D3 RIN or, or LCFS, um, you need to prove that your gas is going into a CNG vehicle. You therefore need. Uh, either to have a contract with a um, CNG station or with a CNG vehicle fleet um, to basically synthetically match the, the gallons that you're putting in versus the gallons that you're taking out and, and prove that, that you're really putting, um, you don't have to track the molecules, but just prove on a matching basis uh, that, that your fuel is going into vehicles. Um, and there's a fee for that. Right, And generally, I'm going to use rough numbers just to make a good example and explain the, the, how this works on something I mentioned before. If you have a dairy project producing 100 um, uh, credits, I'm just going to use credits, uh, you know, typically, roughly, you're going to pay 15% in kind to, to, to the fleet owner or the station owner um, to, to get into that vehicle. So 15%, 15 credits. Same math for landfill gas or food waste, you produce same amount of MMBTUs, you produce 25 credits. You still have to pay 15. That is 60% of your revenues. Um, so just to frame that for folks, I'm using rough numbers to make it easy. Please don't ask about the specifics. Um, but but I just want to frame the, the logic of that. So um, so this this comes to another piece in, in the, the super low value CI high return market is um, you've got to be able to get into the, the vehicles. Um, and again, there's a couple of ways to do that. You can do it on a merchant basis, uh, or you can do it on a contracted basis. You're obviously going to pay more for a long-term contract. Um, long-term contracts are more prevalent for this piece of offtake into vehicles than they are for uh, actual credits generally. Um, but uh, you know, it's another piece in the chain, and it's one that's often overlooked by um, 
the you know, buy folks as they, they look at the market. So ideally, you do exactly what Mark's doing, which is, is go up the value chain. Um, and, and that's that's great. And, and own, meaning own the fleets or own the stations and control um, your destiny. No, that's helpful. Um, I, I want to take off a couple questions that have come in from, from the audience um, here. And, and some of it has to do with uh, the different markets, potentially for RNG. Uh, so one of the questions is if you see more RNG projects for uh, pipeline injection, or um, do you see more projects for CNG for vehicles? And, and then I, I think similarly, how much of RNG's attractiveness today um, as an economic asset is a function of some of the regulatory uh, incentives or advantages? Uh, and I'll kind of leave that open for, for any of you all. I can jump in uh, to the to the second part of that of that question. You know, I think we need to be, you know, pretty honest about that. This is entirely policy enabled. If this were left left to just economics, there are more economic options uh, for people to to you know, move their vehicles around or even get natural natural gas. And and so one of the reasons that Chevron supports a, a price on carbon is because it can drive this this type of improvement, lower carbon emissions over time. And our our, our philosophy has always been a price on carbon that, that takes into account life cycle emissions and is technology neutral, meaning it's not picking a winner or a loser, unleashes the market to create these kind of solutions that, that, we're, that we're talking about. So if policy changes, you, you should expect supply and demand and the actions by the people that are on the phone to, to change over time. I think that's an important recognition. Yep, and no. I, I totally agree. And I, I think there was a second element that kind of to the question that that almost suggested some mutual exclusivity. I, I think with the with the two different market types evolving and the two different things project types, um, I, I don't think there will be so much of mutual exclusivity. It is all policy driven, but I, obviously the the animal waste, dairy, and hog type projects are going to be driven by the, the LCFS and, and the. Um, landfill food waste of, over time will be driven by the, the more utility voluntary market. But but I don't think they're mutually exclusive, uh, and, and the size of those markets will depend on the you know the, the LCFS size is already there. The size of the future utility market will depend on whether that unfolds as a policy initiative or not. Yeah, I'll just add one thing there. I, I totally agree with, with, with what uh, both Mark and John have said. It is policy driven, obviously. But when I think about you know the competitiveness of RNG and how can it work um, specifically for for Williams and companies like us, you know, trying to reduce scope one emissions is very challenging. Um, replacing a molecule with another molecule that's uh, car less carbon intense is not necessarily easy, and so. Um, it is expensive, but I think it is one of the, the few ways that the natural gas company specifically can reduce scope one emissions effectively. And so I think it does have a place um, to be determined how that evolves, obviously, depending on how policy evolves around it and, and how the voluntary market ends up growing. Um, but it is one that, that I think, you know, even given its um, you know, relative expensiveness, it is an interesting molecule. Yeah, and Brian, let's stick with you for the next question. Um, you mentioned, obviously, emissions reductions. It's a huge part of, of the space. When Williams is evaluating different emissions reductions projects, you know, how do you think about the pecking order um, of these different elements in your approach? How do you think about investments in RNG versus hydrogen or solar? And sort of how do you view RNG's role in reducing your emissions or in achieving your emissions reduction goals? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Good question. Um, look, I think no one of those technologies is going to be the magic answer. I think our, our approach is very much kind of all of the above. Um, I think they each serve their own purpose and, and can be effective doing different things. So for us, things like solar, uh, it's great to be able to install solar facilities to, to power our own operations and, and lower our scope to emissions. Um, but there's a limitation on, on how impactful that can be uh, for a company like us. Um, so things like RNG, things like hydrogen, ultimately for us it comes down to where are they in their development life cycle. Uh, you know, I mentioned kind of the right here, right now versus what's next. What is that next emerging technology or opportunity that, that might have a larger scale but, but isn't proven out yet. And so I think RNG is that one that we can do today. Um, you know, how large can it be for us? 
I, I think it's a matter of um, you know how how does policy end up driving that market ultimately? Uh, what's the demand for those products? And if it's there, we're going to continue to to you know hopefully help that market uh, grow. Um, in terms of how we would rank them, I think it comes down to a, a, a simple math equation of you know dollar per ton of CO2. Uh, I think you can can break boil it down to that of when you stack all these up, um, there's a, an abatement curve you can draw, and it shows you where should you be focusing your your time and energy. And so, I think the main limitation for us when it comes to RNG is around scale, right? You know, uh, it it definitely fits well within our infrastructure. It fits well within our expertise. But how big can it really be, and, and how meaningful can it be as we think about achieving net zero? Um, and so, I think we're going to make sure we have a, a varied mix of solutions and not get too concentrated on any one of them. Uh, but I do think RNG is kind of that that today solution that we're focused on. No, that's helpful, and, and kind of that meshes well with some of the questions that have come in too. So maybe I'll open this up to, to Mark or John. Um, there's some questions just on how you see the. Uh, investment transition from RNG to things like green hydrogen projects, and if you have any comment on on how RNG remains as a source of energy relative to other sources, hydrogen, shale gas, and and if this is um, really a transition source of energy to a future in hydrogen, just kind of any comments there. Well, this is this is Mark. I'll, I'll tag a little bit there. I thought Brian did a, a really good job of describing the approach to Scope One and Scope Two and all of the above type of uh, portfolio approach to it that aligns much with what Chevron is doing. I, I guess the, you know, from a, and, and the abatement logic, uh, that all makes a whole bunch of sense. The intriguing thing about renewable natural gas, you know, Chevron's a big player in hydrogen today, uh, but we, we produce hydrogen in most of our refining facilities. Um, in fact, over a BCF of hydrogen today, we've participated in California's uh, past uh, high attempt at a hydrogen freeway, if you will, for, for heavy duty vehicles. And of course, we do carbon capture and sequestration. So you could make the case that we're involved in gray, blue, and green hydrogen today. RNG can be a feedstock for green hydrogen over time. And so I think if you, you think about how these things can play out, I think at least from a science perspective, there's an additional outlet for RNG over time, but that's not yet economic and, and the technology hasn't been worked out yet. So it competes with other things, but, you know, but we and others are working on that. Maybe, John, you can um, hit on one that's come in just regarding uh, dairy versus landfill gas and, and some of the complexity of, of, of dairy versus landfill and, and capital cost risk. Uh, yeah. I think the question is just trying to compare the two. Yeah, I'm just scanning down to the question so I, so I get all of it. Um, yeah, and it sounds like the question is about production risk and then construction operation. I mean, um, yeah, look, construction is relatively simple, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try and I'll go through this in some orderly sequence. Construction is relatively simple. Um, typically, the digesters are already there on, on a lot of dairies from previous programs and things. If not, uh, in-ground digester construction is very simple, right? You don't need a, a superstar construction company to do it. Many regional uh, companies are very capable of doing this. And biogas upgrading system units are nothing new. They've been an industrial technology for decades, right? So there's actually surprisingly little risk there. Um, so you've built the thing. Now let's talk about uh, production gas flows. Um, manure is collected uh, very efficiently, uh, flush, flush uh, barns, flush distant barns, other, other things. Um, uh, and so um, you get a very homogenous, very consistent stream of feedstock uh, that, that is you know, very modelable, very predictable. Um, it's actually far easier than you'd expect um, and probably more predictable than landfill gas and probably because it's a homogenous feedstock, just one feedstock. It's a lot cleaner. There's no siloxanes, there's, other, there's less nasties in it. Um, so it's actually easier from that perspective, um, generally, making generalizations. Um, uh, but the, the thing that you have is you're, you're entirely dependent on the host, right? So you have the risk of the dairy, the dairy's financials, the dairy's business model. Um, you, you know, you're not, there's not a world where you're bringing in other waste and doing other stuff as a backup, right? You, you are on a host-sided project. Um, same thing with the landfill, but landfills are super critical infrastructure, um, tend to be municipally owned. Um, so, so you've really got to understand dairy risk, uh, dairy risk profiles. 
pick the right dairies, incentivize them the right way, make sure they keep their herd count at or about the same level, um, you know, all those kind of things. So um, I, I tried to touch on, on everything there. Um, Operations-wise, relatively simple. You know, there's, there's a pretty easy ranking here, right? Like dairy operations for, for a dairy RNG project, just assuming you're just managing the bus and you're not doing anything with the dairy digester on buses, it's relatively simple. Natural gas is relatively simple. Food waste is much more complicated because you have to find the waste and do other things. And wastewater treatment, also relatively simple. So between the different RNG uh I added a couple of extra bonus ones there, but between the different RNG production uh, sites, um, it, it's on the easiest side of things. I think, so there's a couple other questions that have come in, um, and it kind of fits for one that we had for everyone, and, and, your, and it goes to your view on, on how big do you think RNG can get over the next 5 to 10 to 20 years, either within your footprint or, or um, if you have thoughts more broadly on RNG's penetration into the total um, U.S. gas supply. Um, and then there's a question, um, what's the total feasible projects in, in animal waste and RNG as a whole? Um, it kind of, I think that speaks to, to if you have a view on total volume and, um, and there's some more specifics there in the question, how much is unfeasible to lay pipe and, and would require to, for, for trucking? So a lot there, um, but maybe we could start with uh, kind of each of your views on, on how big you think RNG can get over the next 5, 10, um, 20 years. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in first, uh, if y'all don't mind. Um, from a, a volume standpoint, you know, I, I think that's still to be determined, and a lot of it is going to depend on what policies are put in place to drive that market. You know, as we've already kind of talked about, the ultimately the demand for RNG right now is driven um, by policy, and so if you continue to see momentum building like we have in California and, and now in Oregon and Pennsylvania and Colorado, I, I think you know it can make a substantial play into the overall kind of natural gas fit. Um, you know, how much? Five, ten percent potentially, I would say. Um, but, but you're going to have to have the policy to support it and drive that demand or see a real uptick in the, the overall voluntary market, um, which I think, I definitely think it is feasible and, and we're seeing some real momentum there. And so uh, I, I think there's enough to, to keep this moving and keep, keep pressure on um, making more LCFS programs, making more, uh, you know, extending the RFS and giving some more certainty so that investments and, and ultimately how these are, are backstop, uh, people can get comfortable making those investments. So that's kind of our view right now. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, that's great. Um, I think what, one way I think about it sort of a high, high level is, and this is not an MMBTUs or dollars or, or what have you, it's, um, you know, a cap on the dairy projects will be the CNG vehicle fleet in California and plus Oregon plus Washington or wherever the next LCFS program is. The ultra low CI projects naturally should fill that bucket per the, the math I gave earlier on the um, commission's costs. Um, and then it's really on, uh, as Brian was saying, the policy development and the utility market. A couple of US states with a 5% RNG mandate for their RNG pipeline and an RPS for RNG where the utilities um, can, can push through the extra procurement cost onto rate base. Uh, I, I think suddenly you've, you've got a lot of RNG projects. Um, Brian made a great point earlier. This is a today thing. Uh, you have lots of landfill gas projects that are still power running off of PPAs or merchant on RNG. Um, they'd all convert. All the food waste projects that, that we have in our fleet that are not RNG, we would likely convert if we could get a 20-year 20, uh, 20 decent-priced contract, right? Uh, our U.S. ones, at least, we've already got that in Canada. Um, so there's a lot, and waste wastewater treatment plants are saying, there's a large installed base of existing infrastructure that if there was a demand from U.S. utilities with utility or voluntary market, just investment-grade long-term contracts, um, those conversions would happen very quickly. There's no permitting, there's no sites, it's all ready to go, right? There's minor permitting. But it's not it's not a three to five year thing, it's a one to two year switch. Nothing to add, TG. I think it's been well covered by both Brian and John. Okay, no, that's helpful. Um, just had a question come in out, outside of, of policy dependence, and you guys have, have touched on that. It, what other, um, or what are some of the other threats to um, the RNG investment thesis, and I'd just add on there, 
um, what you see as some of the bigger hurdles um, for RNG production? Is it is it financing? Is it is it finding the feedstock in size? Is it uh, infrastructure? Or getting infrastructure to the projects? I can start on that one, TG. I, I would actually say, you know, although policy was mentioned in the question, I, I think both policy and fragmentation are, are two risk policy in a, in a different way. So uh, policies that consider or that select a, uh, a, a predetermined solution that don't make the market work, but say it's going to be electrical vehicles or it's going to be a certain type of aviation fuel. When people make those type of uh, declarations in policy, it, it limits the creativity that can be applied in a space like RNG and CNG. So policy is an enabler, or it can be something that, that uh, kind of shuts down the demand at some point. And then fragmentation, I, I, you know, I think the issue of uh, both pipelines and or farms, when you think about the animal side of the equation, you're having to gather groups together at times to make these things happen. And so at, at some point that you know, when you get down to the smaller and smaller farms, that can that can take quite a bit of time and effort. You know, there, there is, um, that's a great answer. Um, there's one, maybe not quite what, what the uh, probably was expecting, but, um, you know, policy not, uh, New York excludes biogas as, as part of renewable energy and under VEDA, under everything. Um, it's one of very few states that does it, if not the only one. Um, and there's a lot of environmental justice voices who are equating biogas to fracking. Um, which is not right, correct. Um, and, and they're sort of saying, hey, it's a backdoor to building fracking infrastructure in New York. It's, it's, it's absolutely not. Um, but um, the, the, the point I'm saying is there is some environmental justice pushback about um, uh, that. Yeah. I would just add one other point to that. I think both great answers there. In terms of threat, you know, I think the the threat of electrify everything, you know, plays directly into RNG's, you know, challenge, right? If uh, if you're not allowed to, to build infrastructure or not allowed to use gas as a heating source or in homes or in buildings, uh, ultimately the market for, for gas and, and therefore RNG gets, gets squeezed. And so I think it's definitely a threat. Um, I'm not saying that electrify everything is the right answer. I, I don't think it is obviously, but uh, it's definitely out there. Um, and, and I think going back to the policy, as, as Mark mentioned, I think policy that is specific to a source of RNG could, could be challenging. I think keeping things broad and, and supporting the entire market as opposed to any one specific source um, would be a negative. So that, that's what we hope to see. Perfect. Um, maybe we can touch off on uh, another question that, that's come in. and. and it, it goes to bargaining power within the value chain of RNG. Um, who has the most bargaining power? Is it the uh, dairy farmer, food waste supplier, or um, the RNG reseller? And, and then if any of you have a view on, on what percent of the profit pool is allocated to the upstream suppliers versus uh, the downstream resellers. Well, I can get us. I can get us started. You know, so so today, if you think about being driven by the carbon intensity and the associated low carbon fuel standards, so the LCFS monetary incentives, um, it will it would drive for today. It would drive the value towards the feedstock side of the equation, the RNG production side. Over time, you would expect that likely to move, and I think it will continue to move over time. And when it moves. Is towards the uh, CNG side of the equation in the, in the model that, that Chevron's um, that pursuing, you know, with that goes the goes the leverage that you described, and so and that's why in our case, trying to build both sides of the equation at the same time is is so important to keeping the returns where we think they should be for for our investment purposes. But I think I think the leverage will will move over time. But I'll be interested in others others' views. No, I, I agree. We, we touched on the, the cost today, roughly, of, of getting into CNG vehicles. Um, and, and I just said that, you know, the cap is how many CNG vehicles there are. That, you know, those, if you, the projects from here to here, good. These last few projects, getting in, in as that fills up, um, we're going to get charged more, right? It's just logical. And, and that's, frankly, that's how we underwrite and, and, and look at the market, too. Um, so I completely agree. Uh, I think the other, the important other piece in this is that just, just like landfill gas uh, and, and wastewater treatment and other things, you pay the host royalties. Um, it's no no secret there's a, a sort of a bit of a, 
bubble brewing there in terms of dairyman expectations from developers of how much money they're going to make off these projects. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that piece of the operating expenses or commissions or you know, net, net revenue, however you want to call it, um, is, is also growing, but there's a, there's a logical cap on that as well. Um, and so I think we'll see some projects that are in development stall out just because that's getting out of out of the realms of having a profitable project long term in, in a few fringe cases. Um, but that's that's the other area in, in the OPEX chain where where there's different uh, different and dy different dynamics and, and it is dynamic, right? It's it's gonna come back down when a couple of projects don't happen. I both great answers. I, I would just add, you know, I think what Mark said is right right now, it, it probably leans towards the supply side. Um, but I think the the approach that, that Chevron is taking is actually it makes a ton of sense, right? You're you're trying to, you know, fulfill as many of those pieces of the value chain as you can and, and give yourself that leverage. So I, I think that's a great approach. Uh, but obviously none of this works without the supply. Um, I do think though, you know, when you look at what's been going on in the dairy market the last even just the last year, um, Farmers are interested in these projects. They're looking for ways to, to generate revenue for their business. And, and so um, milk is a, a tough industry. Uh, I, I think that they're hungry to do these projects and see it as, as big value for them as well. So they're definitely open and interested. Um, they, I, I think they want to participate in this space. So I think it's a really good story for RNG. No, I appreciate that. Um, we, we've got one or two minutes here. Uh, there was another question that just came in. Um, and I think it has to do with kind of the view on on the CNG market or the the end market, right? And and what about the risk of, of some of the low CI projects to power EVs in California instead of CNG vehicles? So just any uh, if, if any of you have a view on on that question, that'd be great. Uh, I'm not sure it's a risk. It just means that certain sites will get will will make a different form of power to get into LCFS, right? Um, generally, that has to be within California or would be within WEC. So the electric uh, to, to qualify under LCFS, you, you can't uh, synthetically match electricity across country for LCFS. I mean, you need to connect. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'd frame it as a risk as opposed to there are certain sites that will be within California, particularly on, on, on and around California, um, where instead of building a a bus and an interconnect for natural gas, you'll build an engine or a fuel cell and an electric interconnect. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's a risk. I think it just means that more out-of-state projects can feed uh, RNG into California. It's, it's a choice. Um, you, know, you, you actually pay more commissions in, in the EV route. And, and so while you have a much better score, you end up with Again, gross gross generalization, relatively similarly profitable projects, um, and and depending on what technology you're using, it's a little bit more expensive. Um, so, you know, I, I frame it as a different it's a different channel to access the market. But, uh, Mark or Brian, if you you'd frame it differently. No, I think you covered it well. Yeah, nothing to add here. Great. Well, I, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, we're coming up on the end of the hour, so I appreciate it. Um, thank you again for joining us uh, today for the seventh installment of RBC's Navigating the Energy Transition Series. And, and thank you to our panelists as well for the time. Uh, I appreciate it, and we'll sign off. Thanks for having us. Thanks. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.